Good morning. It's a joy to be with you all again this morning on this Lord's Day. And let me invite you as we are continuing in our study in Luke to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Find your place in Luke chapter 9, there in verse 10. The bulletin does say Luke 10 through 22, which I will read all of. But this morning our focus will be on um, uh, Luke 9, verses 10 through uh, verse 17. Next week, we'll continue through to verse 22. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, The disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. Father in heaven, this morning as we come to your word and we recognize that you show yourself once again as you show yourself again and again to be the Lord who provides. Through your son Jesus Christ you provided for this crowd and through him you have provided for all that we need, for life, for godliness, for salvation in this age and in the age to come. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would make us conscious of your providential provision for us, even as we study your word and we hear it, that you would make us to know that we depend upon you, our good God, who in your perfect wisdom provides for us all that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin our study of the text by noticing... uh, a challenge that we face, by noting a challenge that we face as Christians as we reflect on all that we have encountered in Luke's gospel so far. I want to draw your attention to a couple of texts that we've seen in the passing weeks. First, in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, I want to remind you of what John the Baptist said to the crowds as they came to him when he preached that they should repent of their sins in preparation for the coming of Christ. 
particular thing that he said to them there in chapter 3, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And then we come to chapter 6, and we are reminded of the things that Jesus taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Plain. Beginning with those Beatitudes, and I'll draw your attention to one in verse 21 of chapter 6, where Jesus said, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And in that Beatitude, He called them to fix their eyes on an eternal reality, on a future satisfaction, and to recognize that in light of that, they had a present blessedness. And then later on, He taught them in verse 27 and following, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And the reason why I draw your attention to those various texts that we've seen so far in Luke is because they paint a picture of the life to which we are called as disciples of Christ that is frankly difficult. It's frankly challenging. And our natural temptation, our natural inclination is to excuse ourselves from these demands that our Lord places upon us and from these challenges that we heard in the preaching of John the Baptist. Sharing our food with one another. Sharing our clothing with one another. What's easy to do when you have abundance, but if you only have two tunics and you're commanded to give one tunic, how are we to do that? We're naturally inclined to say, no, that's for someone else. That's for someone else who has more than I have. Or how are we to respond to people who might mistreat us, who are to persecute us. We're taught that we are to love our enemies in reflection of the mercy that we receive from Christ, from God, in reflection of the mercy that He shows us day by day, and the mercy, the great mercy He's shown us in Christ in sending Him to accomplish our salvation. And yet, it's hard to do. It's not our natural bent to embrace this character of life, a life that is focused on the future, what Christ will surely do, and in light of that promise, lives in a certain way now. It's a challenge. How are we to do it? In the midst of that, cha- in the midst of that challenge, we are given assurances. We are given assurances that if we embrace the agenda that Christ has given to us, if we submit ourselves to His Lordship and to His teaching, we can trust His provision in every area of our lives. If we are to give up what we have, to even lose all we have, we are assured that He is able to restore what we have lost in whatever way that He deems wise. If we are challenged to share out of our meager means, but we're not sure how, with what we have, we could possibly meet the great needs that are before us, we are assured that He is able to multiply our meager efforts as He fulfills His purposes. That's what this text before us this morning is going to show us as we look here in Luke chapter 9. Now I want to say something 
about how we're going to read this. When I preach, I hope that you are learning to be better readers of Scripture yourself. But sometimes I think it may be helpful if I make plain some of the ways in which I approach the text. You know, if you were to pick up a commentary off my shelf and you were to turn to the introduction, you would see that virtually every commentary spends a great many pages discussing the authorship of the text. Who wrote this book? And the question occurs to us, why do they, uh, why do they quarrel over these questions? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. But it is an important question. I want to focus on this one important reason. Because what we have before us when we look to God's Word is a word that is both of human authorship and divine authorship. And there are interpretive implications from both truths. Let me deal with them. The fact that the Gospel of Luke is written by this one man, Luke, implies to us that there is a coherence across the whole Gospel. And in fact, knowing that Luke wrote not just Luke, but also the book of Acts, we ought to expect that there is a coherent thought that runs across all of Luke acts that represents the thought of the human author, Luke. And so when we see terms and phrases that he repeats from one passage to another, we should consider the possibility that Luke is calling our attention to something that he has laid down already in his gospel or something that he is previewing, something that he will speak to in the book of Acts. But the divine authorship is also, in fact, it's of utmost importance. It's of more importance than this because it shows us that there's a coherence that doesn't just run across Luke Acts. It implies that there's a coherence that runs across all of Scripture. That the Spirit of God carried along these human authors so that they wrote what was ultimately breathed out by God. And so we should not be surprised to see coherence, not just across Luke and Acts, but across all of Scripture. And in the weeks past and in in this week, I have drawn your attention to different ways that we see that, bringing into contact texts from Galatians and texts from Peter's letters, texts from 1 John with Luke's Gospel and seeing that there's a coherent message that unfolds across all of it. This is one unified book, unified because of the divine authorship of our Lord as the Holy Spirit moved through prophets and apostles and other disciples so that they might speak and write in a way that He ordained His perfect Word. Those two truths, the divine and human authorship, influence the way that I approach the text. And so as I draw your attention to other texts, even as I did in the introduction, drawing your attention to Luke 3 and Luke chapter 6, I note in this text the repetition of certain terms, words like tunic and food, which may seem mundane and ordinary. And yet we saw in John's words that he was encouraging people who were repenting of their sin to demonstrate their repentance by sharing their tunics and their food. And we saw in Jesus' charge at the beginning of chapter 9 when he told his disciples to go out with no bread and not with two tunics. A repetition of these ideas, and we see it again here as we see the command for them to share their food. We see that people at the very end are all satisfied, just as Jesus had promised, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. There is a way in which these texts interact with one another to mutually interpret one another, 
We're going to see that further, that Luke will do this again in his gospel, showing us that what we see in the feeding of the 5,000 has important implications for what we see when we come to the Lord's table and we reflect upon our Lord's words as the institution of the Lord's Supper, as Luke and the other gospel writers record them. And we will see that this text informs the way that the disciples and the way that we should think about the risen Christ's ministry now. So we'll see connections to Luke 24, where they saw and witnessed the risen Lord. We'll come to that in due course, but I want you to see why I look for those things and why I draw your attention to those things. Ultimately, it's because I believe, I want you to believe, in the one author, God, who has authored all of Scripture, and to recognize the coherence behind the thought of Luke himself as well. In any case, as we come to this text, and the other text that we will see, we're going to see three evening meals. Three evening meals. This first meal here happens where Jesus' disciples have just returned from the ministry that he sent them out on, what we considered last week. They went out with very little provision. Jesus told them to take nothing with them. They were only taking what they were wearing on their backs and whatever they had in their hands at the moment. And they went out immediately, and they did ministry. And this picks up, upon their return, the apostles told him what they had done. They told him all that they had done. And then Jesus invites them to withdraw. He takes them aside to withdraw to Bethsaida. And looking at this text in relation to Matthew and Mark's account, we can understand that this is a broader region near Bethsaida that they, we see later on. They're in a desolate place. They're not in the city but they're there in that region on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they withdraw to this desolate place, presumably to be by themselves, to have some rest and to have some time for prayer. But the crowds learn it. The crowds follow them. Jesus doesn't turn them away and say, this is our retreat, this is our time away. He welcomed them. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And he cured those who had need of healing. He gave them what they needed, what they came thinking they needed in terms of their healing, but also the priority is placed on the preaching of the kingdom of God. That's what they most needed, and Jesus did not withhold it from them, even though he had intended to withdraw with his disciples, presumably for a time of rest. And there, as the day grows old, as the day wears away, as we have it here, as it gets towards evening, the twelve very practically come to Jesus and they say, the hour's late, we need to send these people home, send these people into the towns, send them into the region so that they might find food for themselves and that they might find a place to lodge. We can sympathize with their thinking. It's very normal. It's very practical. As I get on in my sermon and if I were to come to 1245, some of the men in the church might rightly look to me and say, it's time for you to wrap this up. It's time for us to go get to lunch, to get fed, to finish this up. Here the day is wearing away. And so they very naturally, very practically come to Jesus and just let him know the hour, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. They're in the wilderness, in a sense. And yet, so it's practical. We can understand their concern and we can sympathize with it. 
in their situation, we would probably be thinking in the very same way. But Jesus says something quite different to them. He challenges them to think differently when he says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Now, at this point, they could respond in two ways. We see that the way in which they do respond is probably the way that we would naturally respond. This is a big crowd, some 5,000 men with their families. We have no more than five loaves, they say, and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. This is a great ask. It's a big task, what Jesus has told them to do, to serve food to all these people. How on earth are they supposed to do this with five loaves of bread? It doesn't matter how big those loaves of bread are. They could be big, but they would have to be as big as Bethsaida to feed this great crowd. How are they to do that? And the other option doesn't seem too enticing. You want us to to go and buy food for them and to bring it back? There are no catering services in that day. It would cost them something like seven months' wages to purchase that much food. And how are you to get all that food from the bakery to this desolate place in time for the people to eat before the sun's coming up again? You see, it is a great ask. And yet, there is a logic that should by now motivate them to see that Jesus is not asking them to do something that is beyond His ability to provide. We've just come through passages where the disciples have seen Jesus display His Lordship in extraordinary ways. Raising the dead, healing the sick, calming a storm, exercising a legion of demons. He has demonstrated again and again His Lordship. We go back to the very beginning of Luke's record of their calling, and we see even there how when he called Peter, he demonstrated his lordship by providing an extraordinary catch of fish when Peter had been at it all night and had caught nothing. And if we are to reason on that basis, if the disciples are to reason on that basis, they could easily look and say, well, Lord, we only have five loaves of bread, we only have two fish, but you're here, and that's enough. Will you help us? How will you make this happen? Will you multiply the loaves? Will you multiply the fish? At the very least, they could recognize that Jesus is the one standing before them who can make it possible for them to fulfill the command that He gives them. They don't recognize that, of course. But they could have. They should have. If we were in their midst, we probably would not either. We almost certainly would not either. But the evidence... The precedent is there for them to make this decision. And they can also look back to the Old Testament. God has done things like this before. We think of Exodus 16, how God fed the people miraculously in the wilderness, in the wilderness, in a desolate place, with bread from heaven. All through their 40 years of wandering, God fed them miraculously from heaven. We can think of the ministries, again, of Elijah and Elisha, When there was a great famine in the land under Elijah, God miraculously provided for a widow. Luke has already mentioned that in Luke chapter 4, that event. It's surely in his mind. And there in that same context, when Ahab threatened the prophets, we find in that context that God had provided for his prophets with a man planted in Ahab's inner circle named Obadiah who had hid the prophets with similar phrasing. About 50 people, about 50 
groups of 50, hidden where Obadiah would regularly feed them with bread and water. God showed himself in that time in history, just like in Israel's sojourn in the wilderness, that he is the God who provides and that he can provide in any and every circumstance. He did it under Elisha too. Elisha who miraculously, through Elisha, God miraculously fed many prophets with only a little bit of food and yet there was still some left over. You find that in 2 Kings chapter 4. Very much like our text, there are things that we're going to see in this text that echo those texts. And we ought to be thinking along those lines. God has done this kind of thing before. Jesus has done this kind of thing before. The disciples should be thinking along those lines, but they're not. They're thinking of themselves. They're thinking of their own limitations. They don't have a lot of food, and they don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of time. And frankly, they don't have a lot of desire to serve the needs of these people. You can hear that in the, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. If you sense that, perhaps, hint of sarcasm with which that would come off your own lips if you were in the same situation. There were about 5,000 men, which leaves us with somewhere between 10 and 20,000 individuals altogether, most likely. So Jesus now takes the initiative in the situation and he says to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. That phrase which is there in 2 Kings chapter, uh, excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 18 as well. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. I read from there to the end of the chapter because it's so matter-of-fact. We could easily be duped into passing over it, kind of thinking, oh, well, we've seen this kind of thing before. Ho-hum, it's just another miracle by the Lord. Luke doesn't spend a lot of time with it. He doesn't describe it in great and vivid detail. But there are things that should cause us to question that assumption, to think differently about it, most notably that this is one of the few texts that all four gospel writers include in their accounts, which suggests that the disciples found this to be of great importance. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use identical language at points to describe what Jesus does in breaking the bread and giving it to his disciples and distributing it to the people. And we've seen this in previous uh, sermons in the months that we've been together in previous teaching, how the disciples, as they wrote, as, as Matthew and Mark and Luke wrote their Gospels, they used language from these accounts in the account of the Lord's Supper to draw a connection between these two passages. Let me take you there for a moment in Luke chapter 22. In Luke 22, verse 14, and show you some of this. Luke 22, verse 14, we read, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. When he had given thanks... 
He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And behold, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. And when we see in Luke's account, we see the same thing in Matthew and Mark. We see a lot of repetition of language, an emphasis on teaching about the kingdom of God, just as we've seen in Luke chapter 9, a pointing forward to his impending suffering, just as we see in Luke chapter 9. The way he takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. That language, too, echoes what we've seen in Luke chapter 9. And it's as if the disciples, as if Luke is seeking to show us that we ought to think of what Christ is doing there in the same way that we think of what he's doing when he feeds 5,000. That just as he provided for the needs of that crowd in the moment, so in a greater way, he has provided for us all that he needs, all that we need, excuse me, all that we need, he has provided in himself, which is pictured in the bread and the cup, in his body which was broken for us, in his blood which was shed for us. It is enough to satisfy our every need. And it's the connection through the repetition of language that is drawn that helps us to see that what Christ has done, what we remember in the Lord's Supper, what Christ has done for us, is a perfect provision for our salvation. We also see that same language in Luke chapter 24. And I want you to see this as well. In Luke chapter 24, we see the same language used to describe Jesus' interaction with His disciples as they journey on the road to Emmaus, and then later, as He appears to all of His disciples. Here, let me give you the context. Jesus appears, but they don't recognize Him, with two disciples who weren't among the twelve, who are on their way to a town called Emmaus. And He walks with them, and they tell Him about the things that have taken place. And they despair, because they thought, they said, that Jesus was the one who was going to fulfill God's promises of restoration for Israel. They thought He was the one whom God had provided for the restoration. And yet, they no longer thought that because he had been crucified. And Jesus rebuked them for their foolishness and their failure to believe that which the prophets had spoken. And then in verse 28, where we will pick up here, we read this. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. That language, the day is now far spent, that's how we would speak in an English idiom. In, in, the, in the Greek language, in their idiom, they would say something like, the day is laying down, just like you lay down at night. And it's the same language, not exactly uh, in the same order, but it's the same language that we see in Luke chapter 9, when Luke describes the day, saying in verse 12, now the day began to wear away. It's the same as saying, the day was now far spent. They urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. 
And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. As we go back to Luke 9, I want you to see all those ideas and even words and phrases that we saw in Luke chapter 9. How Jesus in chapter 24 is known to them in the breaking of bread and eating fish. And here we find him feeding a crowd with bread and fish, breaking the bread, blessing it, giving it to his disciples doing those actions that, in fact, reminded them, recalled to their mind something, so that they knew him and recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And Luke, I suggest to you, is very intentionally connecting these passages in our minds so that we will see that the one who is able to provide for us, the one who does provide us, is the risen Lord Christ. And though we do not see him now, and though he is not in our midst, Physically speaking with us right now, He is present through the Spirit whom He has given us. He is with us even to the end of the age. He is risen and He is with us. And He is able to provide for us in all that we need. That's what this passage in Luke 9 was showing the disciples. In John, John will put a focus on the way the crowds responded to what Jesus is doing. But Luke is really highlighting the disciples and how this is meant to instruct them. Even the way in which it's 12 baskets of broken pieces. One to match the number of the 12. So that each man, as he stands there looking at this basket full of bread, would have an enduring lesson in his mind, enough for each one of them. As Jesus said to them, you feed them. And they looked at what they had and their meager means and their meager provisions and said, how on earth can we do this? They needed to understand that they could do what he commanded them because he is able to provide for them to do what he commands them. And so for us, he too, as he commands us to do something, We are able to do that because the risen Lord Jesus provides us all we need to obey Him, to follow Him, to submit to His Lordship in all of our lives. We need to know that the risen Lord is able to provide. Texts like this show us that. Now, we, as I have said, are called to trust in the Lord who provides according to His perfect wisdom as we pursue His purposes. And I want to apply that in our life together as a church because we need to think rightly about this. There's a lot of ways in which we could think wrongly. We could presume upon the provision of the Lord in a way that would be wrong. 
So I want to give important qualifications, call attention to some things about the way in which I have said this. Again, let me say it again. We are called to trust in the Lord who provides according to His perfect wisdom as we pursue His purposes. We can trust that the Lord will provide for us as we pursue His agenda, not ours. You see, in our day, it's a common misconception, it's a common belief that is held very broadly in our society that if I trust the Lord hard enough, if I just believe firmly enough, if I do what I'm supposed to, then I can expect that God will supply me lavishly in this life with material possessions or with success in my career, with all kinds of things that I might like to have, but that conform to my agenda for my life, not His agenda for my life. And I simply say to you, you ought not to trust the Lord's provision for you to pursue an agenda that is contrary to His will. Our Lord has never, ever promised us that this life will be marked by prosperity in worldly terms. He has said, blessed are you who hunger now. You are blessed now. But you also may hunger now. Why are you blessed now? Because He has promised, firmly fixed this promise, that we will be satisfied in eternity. That's the promise. Not a promise for now. I don't think many of you are likely to go follow prosperity preachers, to listen to them on the radio. But we all let this seep into our minds. We think about career success. We think about even success in ministry. Judging it by the world's terms. How large our congregation might grow. How much influence we might have in society. We think... Surely the Lord will bless us if we pray hard enough, if we believe hard enough. We need to step back and evaluate, is our agenda in conformity to His agenda? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God? And let me remind you what Luke has shown us about the kingdom of God. What he has shown us it is not. It is not a thing that comes through force of arms. It is not a thing that comes through human power. It is not a thing that comes through people who by and large, are among the wise of the earth. It is a thing that comes in a secret way that He revealed in parables as a simple seed being sown, as the Word of God is preached and proclaimed, and that seed is sown broadly, and God blesses that work and provides for it in our lives so that the seed is nourished and grows in our lives and we become fruitful for the sake of the kingdom in ways that conform to what Christ has shown us in His teaching. Not exalting us in human terms, but humbling ourselves to seek to serve those who are in need, identifying those who are the lowly in, with, the, with those who are the lowly in this world. That's the way the kingdom comes as people receive the word preached and embrace the cause of Christ and reflect His attitudes and his practices in their lives. It's what we read this morning together corporately from 1 Peter 2. I want to make this point really strongly because in our day, though I don't think many of us would be tempted to go and embrace the prosperity gospel as we know it to be preached, we might be tempted to embrace other false gospels that might hold forth something that in itself is good. Maybe the hot-button issues in our own day, 
cultural issues that are contentious, where people are seeking to promote values that are, quite frankly, wicked, horrendous, quite contrary to the will of God. Relationships are encouraged and are sanctioned and are blessed that are clearly not in conformity with His Word. We'll talk more about that tonight as we come to 1 Thessalonians 4. And we might think what we need to do in light of the present situation, what the most urgent need is, the most pressing need is, is to join some kind of movement, to gather ourselves together and to go by our strength and by our political might and by our force to enforce the will of God on the society. That's not how the kingdom of God comes. As people band together with their own strength and their own power and dependence upon themselves and what they themselves can provide. It may not be wrong for some of you if you are positioned. In fact, it may be quite right if you are positioned according to God's providence in a place where you can seek what is good and what is right. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about the nation of Niger and I prayed for them. And as I reflected on some things that friends of mine who are missionaries over there shared with me, they shared how a U.S. senator was able to evacuate them and many other missionaries from that country in the midst of hostility, amidst a military coup. There's a man who is uh, supportive of the gospel, who is placed according to God's providence in a way where he can use the power he's been given for good. Some of you might someday be positioned in such a place in your town, in your community. It's not wrong to use that influence, to use that position at work if you are a boss for things that are just and things that are right and things that are good. The distinction that I'm drawing is that many voices in our day are calling for Christians to set aside all this talk about turning the cheek and all this talk about loving our enemies and to band together by our own strength and by our force to force in, if you will, the door so that we can bring in the kingdom of God by our own strength. And I say again, the kingdom of God does not come by our own strength. And the kingdom of God it will finally and fully come by a great show of strength. But not because every Christian in the world bands, bands together. But because a trumpet will sound, and the Lord will descend, and He will show Himself once again, finally and fully, that He is and He alone is the Lord who provides. So I want to warn you against that, that way of thinking. It can be tempting to embrace it because it does seek to uphold what is right, but it seeks to do it in a way that is not right. It's not consistent with our calling. As a people who are called to humble ourselves, like Christ, people who are called to do what Peter said here in 1 Peter 2, when he reflected on Christ, how he himself lived in this life, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We're saved because he did that and he was faithful in that way. And Peter recognized, as all of the apostles all the way across Scripture teach, that we as Christians are called to the same pattern of life. One that pursues God's aim in weakness and dependence upon the one who is not weak, upon the one who is able to supply all our needs. He is able to provide. He is 
willing to provide. Even when he went to the cross, it was not because he was unable to provide, but because he was in the work of providing for us. He is risen. He is ascended. He is at the Father's right hand, and he reigns even now. And so we can trust him, even when life is uncertain, even when we face difficulties, even when our world is confusing and we wonder what ought we to do in this life. We can trust our Lord, who is Lord of all, that he will indeed provide for us as we pursue his agenda in his way according to his will. I want to close simply by reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 11 and reflecting on the way in which Peter describes the way in which God has indeed provided for us as we live our lives now. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the provision that God has given to us. Let me encourage you simply as we close to take this with you and reflect upon it this afternoon. God has richly provided for you an inheritance that is imperishable kept in heaven. And though now we may face trials of every sort, these are for the testing of our faith so that its genuineness may be tested and proven to His glory. He has provided for us. He continues to provide for us. He will provide for us evermore. Let us pursue His aims then and trust Him forevermore. Father in heaven, we pray, O Lord, that You would work in us to help us to trust you. It's not easy, we confess, and we fail very often. But everything that we need for life and godliness, you have assured us, you have given to us through your Son, through your Word, through the teaching that we have in your Holy Word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us to depend upon what you have given us, to make us to trust you, and that what you have given us is sufficient. 
that as you call us to do things that are extraordinary, things that we can't imagine accomplishing, things that we look at and we say, we don't have the means to accomplish this end, and yet we recognize that it is consistent with your call, O Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust that you are the God who provides. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.